Hey everyone, welcome to the Missio podcast. Um, I'm really excited to be bringing you this teaching this week. It's going to be really fun. You know, over the next four weeks, we are going to be looking at some of Jesus' teachings where he mentions what the kingdom of God is like. And then we're going to be exploring some other teachings around the New Testament that talk about the kingdom of God and how we then live in his kingdom as his people. And so two weeks ago, Dan talked about the field and pearl parable. And last week we talked briefly about how the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And this week I want us to look at something that I think is actually really, really important. And and what I'm calling it is just simply table manners of the kingdom. So how many of you had like pretty rigid table etiquette, manner rules or whatever that you were supposed to follow as you were growing up? I remember growing up, we ate basically every dinner together at at our table, and, and I grew up with five brothers and sisters, so we're, there was a lot of us at our table. And I remember the very specific rules, or at least some of them, of our dinner table. And so some of them were like, no eating before the prayer. And another one was, don't, over, don't reach over the table to grab something, ask for it to be passed, which with six kids, that you know rule honestly lasted for like a day. Uh, another one was don't burp at the table. And now listen, I had two brothers, and I'm going to tell you this. It wasn't us boys that that rule was created for. My sisters could outbelch, I mean, I I don't know what can belch a lot, but they could outbelch a lot of things. Um, and so that rule was created. Also, I loved this next rule. We were not allowed to come shirtless to the table. Apparently, me and my brothers had come to the table shirtless one too many times, and so it became a rule. But I'm sure that we all have had table manner rules that we had growing up. When we would go to my grandfather's house, we were not allowed to drink our water until after the meal was done. And don't ask me why this was, because to this day I have no idea. But my dad confirmed this and said this is how he grew up as well. That was the rules that he had. But table manners are those things that are meant to help us understand what is the appropriate way to function and act during certain moments of life. And I think one of the things that you learn as you get older is that the table manners were meant to frame more than just simply how to eat a meal like with people. They were there to help you understand that life has certain expectations for how we are to live that you kind of learn along the way. And the table is one of the best places to teach important truths because there is something disarming and relational and connecting about sitting around a table having a meal with people. And this is why, honestly, throughout the Bible, there are countless moments where we find people gathering around a table for a meal, learning about the truths of God and how to function in his kingdom. We're going to look at a teaching of Jesus from Luke chapter 14. And this teaching of Jesus is pretty unique because it kind of happens just live, like in the very much in the moment. And it doesn't take on some of the kind of feel that other parables of Jesus have, where he says things like the kingdom of God is like a field or a pearl or a mustard seed or whatever. Jesus just shows up to the home of, his, of this Pharisee for a dinner on the Sabbath. And Luke says that the Pharisees were watching Jesus closely. They were trying to see if he would kind of slip up and do something that they could then nail him for. 
And this interesting encounter takes place because a man shows up who has edema, which is a disease that causes fluid to build up in certain parts of the body, typically in the legs and feet. And almost always this signifies a more serious condition with either the heart or the kidneys or liver or something like that. And again, this is on the Sabbath that is taking place, which there were very specific rules on what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. But Jesus tends to ignore a lot of those and just does whatever he wants. And so Jesus heals this man and the Pharisees that are there. They're all kind of looking around wondering who is going to call Jesus out on this for disobeying the law, which no one does. And so they all sit down to continue the meal. And and this is where the specific teaching picks up that I want us to look at. Because as everyone is heading to their seats at the table, Jesus Jesus notices something happening. And so let's read this text. And I want you to look and see from Jesus' perspective what is happening. This is from Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 14. It says, When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your uh, when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, Move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to, the, to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. And when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of God from Luke chapter 14. So have you ever played like one of those group games where you ask one another, all right, if there was one person throughout human history that you could invite to dinner, who would it be? I'm always curious to know like what people are going to answer when this question is asked. I don't know that I have a very good answer for who I would invite to dinner. But if you think about the person that you would invite to dinner, and then think about where you would have them sit in your home or at your table. I think there tends to be, even if it's kind of an unspoken thing, a place or area of your home where we would want people to gather if we're trying to impress them, right? Like for us, we would not have a guest of honor sit in our boys' room in our house to eat because they would immediately know we thought very little of them if, if we did that. We have some friends that live here in Seattle And for them, I imagine they would take people up to their rooftop experience in their building to check out the views of downtown Seattle. And that would be where they would invite people because it's just a beautiful place to be. And, you know, in the ancient world, the table was the place where people could physically see their position in society. And so you would have the seat of honor, which would have been closest to the host. And then basically the furthest away, the further away that you went from the host, the lower you were socially. 
And apparently dinners like this were like episodes of Survivor. You guys ever seen Survivor? I'm sure you have. But people were like jockeying to grab the seats that were closest to the host that would then bestow on them the badge of highest rank and honor. And Jesus sees this jockeying unfolding and he begins to teach using the honor-shame culture of that day to draw out a fundamental truth in his kingdom. And so he says, listen, if you take the seat of honor and someone more important than you comes in and you're going to have to give get up and then head to the other end of the table, how, how dumb are you going to feel in that moment? Like for real. You'll have worked so hard to forcefully gain the seat of honor only to have a public showing of the truth, which the truth is there are people in the world who are considered to be of greater importance than you. He says, rather... You should start in the place of low position because if you do, then the host may ask you to move up and therefore publicly publicly honor you. And see, this was not Jesus' way of like giving arbitrary advice for how to not be publicly shamed and then how to move up the social ladder in society. Verse 11 is actually where Jesus connects us to life in the kingdom. He says, For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He's using a very common thing at this time, helping someone to be less prone to, you know, feeling public shame. And then he kind of slips in this this kingdom truth while he is doing so. And so he says, instead of seeking honor, seek humility, because in my kingdom, all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. And this is a really important truth of the kingdom. And it's a theme that actually Luke has all through the gospel. Mary, the mother of Jesus, her song of praise from Luke chapter 1 actually reflects this same kingdom reality. After Mary becomes pregnant with Jesus, she visits her cousin Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist. And after that interaction unfolds, Mary then composes this song of praise to God. And this is from Luke chapter 1. Verses 46 through 55. And so listen to the language of both the humbling and exalting taking place. It says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowly state of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Indeed, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has come to the aid of his child Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. You know, Mary's song is all about the reality that God will reverse the natural way that the world tends to operate, where the rich and powerful are going to be brought low, and then the oppressed and forgotten and lowly will be lifted up. And Jesus wasn't saying that in his kingdom being wealthy is a bad thing. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that the way that the world tends to work is that people will often use, step on, step over, or push other people down in order to lift themselves up. 
See, Jesus is telling the guests, don't seek your own honor and position and prestige, rather seek humility. And then if you are honored, you receive that honor with grace and humility. James chapter 4 verse 6 actually echoes this idea saying God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The implication being that the way of Jesus demands humility that seeks the goodness and recognition of others, not ourselves. If you ever watch the show uh, Friends, classic show, right? There's an episode where they are all discussing whether or not there can ever be a purely unselfish act of service. And they're kind of going back and forth on this. Some people think there is a way to have an act of service that is purely unselfish and other people think there isn't. But they even say that to feel emotionally fulfilled by an act of service is actually a selfish game because it involves you feeling good about doing good for others, right? And the point of the episode is to draw attention to the reality that acts of service do in fact benefit the person doing that act of service even if on a small scale of being emotionally fulfilled by doing that act, and that is okay. And we should still work hard to do good things in the world, even though it makes us feel good for doing them. And so this is what the episode of Friends is trying to articulate. And Jesus honestly wouldn't disagree that acts of service do bring emotional satisfaction. And the point is not to try to avoid those benefits of doing good, but to, get to, but to begin to assess, am I doing this good thing ultimately for the other person's good? Or is this really about me gaining notoriety in some way to puff up my ego or my place of honor in the world? Think about the story of the widow's might from Luke chapter 21. The wealthy people put in this huge amount of money while the poor woman gives just simply two mites, which would have been like a fraction of a, a, a penny, essentially. And Jesus says that the woman actually gave far more because she gave out of the overflow of her heart and poverty. The wealthy gave so that people would notice them and therefore they would be honored for their giving. See, Jesus wasn't drawing attention to how much money people had. He was drawing attention to whether our giving is done in pride and in hopes of gaining recognition and honor, or if it's done in humility to simply do good for the community that we are a part of. And so Jesus is telling the guests, look, Don't seek the head of the table. It's not about self-aggrandizing and seeking out honor for yourself. Real kingdom living is about humility and not caring whether or not you ever receive any kind of recognition or praise for the good that you do. Because ultimately God will see it, that good. He will see that good and he will honor it as he looks on you with joy and pride. And so that's the first kind of half of this teaching that Jesus then turns to the host of the banquet and he begins to address the host. And this is a really, really important interaction that takes place. See, in Jesus's day and honestly still in our day today, there was an idea called balanced reciprocity. And what this meant was that any social interaction that involved the exchange of goods or services or other items of value between individuals or groups expected a roughly equal exchange of value in return. 
a repayment of sorts. So each party gives and receives with equal measure, with the exchange and the repayment being seen as a form of mutual obligation or exchange of goodwill. And so banquets like this that Jesus is at in this story were one of the main forms of balanced reciprocity in the sense that the guest list would both affirm social and political status of both the host and the guests and then demand a return of invitation and prestige to the host by the guests at some future moment. So it was basically like, I invite you to my house, now you invite me to your house. Then I invite you to my house, then you invite me to your house, and so on and so forth. And this exchange codified the position and power of people in society and helped maintain the division that was present between the haves and the have-nots. And so if a person was unable to return the honor in some way to the host, either by invitation to a similar banquet or payment of goods or services or something to that effect, then that person would be highly unlikely to ever be invited to the banquet in the first place. And so Jesus identifies the natural way that things worked with hosts in this balanced reciprocity system, and he begins to turn it on its head. He says, don't invite people simply out of a desire to be repaid for the invitation. Because again, what would happen is that the people would host a banquet and they would think, if I invite the most elite people in our society, then some, then those same people would be obligated to invite me back and therefore I can begin climbing the political and social ladder that I want to, the way I desire, because it brings me honor and prestige. And Jesus says, no, this is not the way that things work in my kingdom. He says, instead, here are four categories of people that you should invite to the table with you. You invite the poor, you invite the crippled, you invite the lame, and you invite the blind. See, each of these demographics represented people who had no ability to repay the host and therefore would very likely never receive such an invitation to begin with. And I mean, this is pretty radical. Jesus is telling them that this self-honoring system where people are obligated to repay and reciprocate what you give them is just simply not how the kingdom of God works. Real and true generosity and hospitality is done without thought of repayment. He says, so ensure that your guest list is made up of people who have no way of repaying you. You know, this, this truth is honestly echoed all throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 28 through 29 says, Every third year you shall bring out the full tithe of your produce that for that year and store it within your towns. The Levites, who were the, where the priests came from, because they have no allotment or inheritance with you, as well as the resident alien, the orphans, and the widows in your towns, may come and eat their fill, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work you undertake. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, Jesus says that he came to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Beatitudes in Luke chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 5 talk about God blessing the poor, the hungry, those who mourn. 
In Luke chapter 7, when John the Baptist sends some of his own disciples to ask Jesus if Jesus truly is the one who they've been waiting for, Jesus tells those disciples, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with skin disease are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news brought to them. Jesus is saying, look, these people receive my free gift with humility and gratitude because they have no way to ever repay the gift. And that is exactly what the point is. Generosity and hospitality in the kingdom are not contingent on people's ability to repay your goodness toward them. It is given simply because we long for them to receive what we have been freely given as well, which is the nearness and goodness of God. And so Jesus tells the host, your reward comes at the resurrection, because in the resurrection, you then have the greatest gift of honor available, which is life with Jesus forever. And so obviously Jesus is talking more than than just simply about banquets and tables in this parable. He's helping them understand an important kingdom truth. That in the kingdom of God, humility and generosity are two of the most important of all table manners to live by. I mean, think about Jesus' life and work. Philippians chapter 2 paints the picture so well. It says, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus occupied the ultimate seat of honor, nearest to the throne of God himself. And yet, what did he do with that position? He gave it up. And he brought himself low. Jesus isn't telling these guests or hosts anything that he already hasn't done himself. See, Jesus' humility cannot be outmatched. And our goal should never be to compete in our humility because then we fundamentally lose the point of humility, right? We don't compete for who is the most humble because in doing so, we immediately lose and become the most prideful right? Our goal should be to reflect on what humility looks like in our own lives and begin to live into that. But it wasn't just humility that we see in Jesus, because ultimately, Jesus allowed himself to be taken to the point of death on the cross. Generosity is typically defined as giving more of your time or your money than is necessary or expected. But in the story of the widow's might, the wealthy were probably giving more than was expected, and yet Jesus says that the woman was more generous. Why? Why did he say that? Because generosity, real generosity, is about sacrifice. It's about giving with the mindset that this will never come back to benefit me 
ever. This entire moment in this teaching is Jesus' way of saying, look, in my kingdom, the table manners are very different than everywhere else. First, no matter your position or place in the world, we are called to willingly take the place of humility because it gives others the chance to be nearer to Jesus. And often when you do this, it's going to feel uncomfortable for a while until at least the act of lifting others up becomes your real place of joy and fulfillment. But we have to be people who love stepping into the lives of the people around us to lift them up so that they can get a more clear picture of Jesus in that moment. So I'm about to bring in a Lord of the Rings reference into this teaching, so just kind of buckle up. But do you remember the moment where Sam and Frodo are on Mount Doom and Frodo just like physically can't go any further? And so Sam looks at him and he declares, look, I can't carry it, meaning the ring, for you, but I can carry you. And and Sam lifts Frodo onto his shoulders and carries him up and everyone is in tears and they're all streaming down their faces. It's this beautiful moment in the movie, right? In the kingdom, we take that place of carrying others, one another's burdens because we long for people to reach that moment of encountering Jesus. And often that will mean giving up certain things within ourselves for that to happen. But our longing in doing that is not to receive praise and adoration Because we already have the resurrected Jesus living inside of us. What more do we need? (laughs) And so we lift those people up because we know what can happen, right? When they meet Jesus face to face. And that becomes our motivation. And then secondly, we live lives of real generosity, Table manners means that we give up our right to go first and then we say, what can we bring you? Here it is. Here's what we can bring you. See, churches should be places where we give without thought of repayment. I want to tell you a story, and this is not a story to pat ourselves on the back, but just simply because it's an important story. This week, a friend of mine who many of you know from who works at Northgate Elementary asked if we had a car seat for a mom of who has a one and a half year old little child. And we, we didn't. You know, I sent out a message and we couldn't find a car seat, which was fine. And so I, I texted him on Wednesday just saying, look, we didn't find one, but we re- would really love to purchase a car seat for you. And so he told me that they had actually found a car seat, but that the mom needed some money to buy, you know, the little baby some clothes. And so instead we gave them a $200 gift card. To, that was it. And it's really not that much that we gave, but it's honestly what we could do in, in the moment. But it's important to us that we recognize the needs in our community and we do what we can to give generously without thought of how it will benefit us. 
Our goal as a church is simply to be generous and to bring the tov, the goodness of God to the world, because that is what the kingdom calls us to do, generously doing good for people simply for the sake of doing good for people. That is what Jesus demands of his people who are living in his kingdom. These are the table manners of the kingdom. Humility and generosity. I love these teachings of Jesus. There's so much that we can and do learn from them. So thank you for listening today and I hope you have a wonderful week. Bye everyone.